here, uh, here we are. When we, uh, when we started the teaching through Exodus, certainly, uh, certainly this chapter was um, one of the focal points. The, uh, the Ten Commandments, man, here we are. We've gone through 19 chapters worth of Exodus, and now um, some of the most famous, quoted, misused, misinterpreted text in the entire Bible. Uh, beginning with the fact that in all of our subtitles in our Bibles, they're called the Ten Commandments, and really in the Hebrew, uh, the closest translation is the Ten Words. So at the very beginning, okay, all of our subtitles have uh, somewhat confused us as to what these things really, really are. So uh, tonight, I want to begin just by reading uh, these first six verses. What we're going to do is seven weeks in the Ten Commandments. For those of you that are mathematically sound, um, some weeks we will be teaching on literally five words. Uh, other weeks, like tonight, we'll, we'll tackle two commandments. It just depends on the week. So let's begin. We're going to put the first six verses on the screen. Let's read where we'll be at tonight to set the tone and the context from what my, my subtitle calls the Ten Commandments. And God, verse 1, spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me, says verse 3. And verse 4 says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Or any, li that's, that's like speaking against Halloween. Um, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You, verse 5, shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, says God, verse 6, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Um, heavy text. And uh, what we're going to do through this whole journey it's sometimes difficult to understand the application of the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words for you and I. That's been my biggest question as a Christian. Do the Ten Commandments still apply today? Through testimony, each week, we want to share from some of our Lot family's leaders' perspective how some of these commandments have harmed their life in disobeying them, how they've affected them. We have a young woman here in our church community who, who has a powerful testimony. She, uh, she Instagrammed, I believe, or tweeted one of the two, this picture uh, of several weeks ago. It says, 15 of my 26 years have been defined by sexual abuse, an eating disorder, shame, and autonomy. Now I am married, healthy, and walking in the freedom and abundance of Jesus. Uh, some of you guys who have heard of Lecrae, Lecrae actually retweeted this, and right now there are 60,000 likes of this exact image, which came from a person in our body. So in terms of putting no other gods before them, an eating disorder, a struggle, let's watch this testimony of what God has done. My feet hit the floor as I awake from the night before. I rubbed my eyes as I staggered to the door of my bathroom, and soon I met with my reflection in the mirror. 
You see, they're supposed to make things clearer, but some days I gaze and there's this thick, murky haze, and in ways it depicts the fogginess of my mind. You see, most times I'd prefer to just glance in the mirror, make sure everything's in place and there's nothing weird on my face and start my day, but I'm going to dare to say that most of us are scared to stare. To take a moment and stare looking beyond what our eyes can see and into the souls of our being. You see, we're scared of what we become. We know that our lives can't be undone and that time can't reverse itself in a toxic fashion. So, like a hero in action, we put our mask back on Bruce Wayne. Many agonizing dark nights as we try to cover up the shame. But believe me here as I say that as I walk away from my reflection, I can unknowingly choose a replacement name that leads me in the wrong direction, and my confession is that most days, I abandon my true identity and exchange it with the enemy, and it's like venom in me. The lies are spreading through my veins, it withers my bones away, it destroys me quickly, and I'm so terrified of what my next breath may bring me, and that leads me to fear. Oh fear, you are so engulfing, when you become my name I shrink back. Oh fear, you are so insulting to the God who created us to live with fiery passion, who freed us up to love deeply in word, deed, and action. But I sit back and place these shackles around my wrists, subject myself to slavery. Man, this isn't who I was made to be. But I'm feeling paralyzed, and this isn't dramatized. But I realize that this fear of mine is a disguise, and I despise that it keeps me from loving at all. But I resolved to never be hurt again, so I'll build these walls around my heart to keep anyone from getting in. And the sun has again risen on another morning, and without any warning, I'm looking defeat in the eye. And when he wins, he only points out the failures of you and I. And he casts my vision down so I can give you distinct details of the very ground that I'm walking on. But I keep walking on. In every corner I turn, there's another loss to record. I'm choosing defeat before there's even a final score to record. So just throw an L up on my forehead, like Squints from the Sandlot said. Because my losses are stacking up like the Cubs at Wrigley. Can't seem to get a W here in this windy city. And I can't even get a second glance from my enemy named Victory. It all seems so contradictory. God, you're supposed to be a friend to me. My ground is so slippery. I'm believing Satan's trickery. Lord, I need you to give me victory or put me out of my misery now. Now some days my name is also victim. Feeling fooled, mistreated, and cheated. Is everyone out to get me? Is there a target on my back? I need a security breach to lessen the traffic so I can relax because I feel attacked. And every glance I get from another is an assumption that their purpose is to cause me to suffer. But what a selfish thought to think that the world would single out me. That I'd be the point of their assault. That's just a victim way of thinking. But I shift the fault from one person to another. I refuse to own my stuff. I'm focused on the sins of all the others. And then I brilliantly shift the responsibility. And I'll fight to find ways to justify the sin of me. I become an object of martyrdom and pity. Everybody wants to harm me. Everybody's out to get me. But, God... See what a beautiful phrase that's hidden in the scriptures. It paints a picture of rebirth taken from depravity to worth. So let me go back, back and reclaim what is lost. Christ has paid the cost to give me a new identity when mine was lost. You see, what's defined me through life are circumstances and people. A lack of guidance growing up. I had no support emotionally. I had no idea who I was, only who I was supposed to be. I've been labeled and mistreated by boyfriends, enslaved to an eating disorder for 10 years. That thing was my best friend. A victim of violation and abuse. And though I'm still dealing with the shame, God God has refined me so much through it, and as he removes the stains, I change. But listen, don't feel sorry, because this is part of my story, and the life I have is different than yours, but the purpose is the same to bring him glory. So I'll embrace the hand I've been dealt, and I'll walk through the valley, because I know the dealer Jesus, and he never deals badly. You see, my life hasn't gotten easier since I've given my heart to Christ, and my wounds are not washed away and healed overnight, but now I fight to live in hope and not the circumstance, and I'll choose to believe even when I can't understand. 
So even though every day I still fight the shame, God's truth remains the same. And if and now in Christ I abide, then I can tell condemnation bye-bye. And even though I still battle fear dictating each step, I have to trust that my next breath is supplied by the King, bury my head in his chest and find rest in the God who redeems. And even though I still feel like a victim and it causes my defenses to rise and my anger to spike, I have to lie my malicious heart down and see the big picture of my life. You see, Christ came to set these wicked hearts free, to give new names to you and me. And like Albert Pujols, I've traded teams arm in arm with the angels with different aspirations and dreams. And you see, this team that I've been traded to was run by the king, no LeBron. I'm talking Jesus, the one to whom rocks will sing. And you see, Jesus, he's the chain breaker. He's a lifesaver. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, so he never wavers. He's a rock. He stands tall. He pardons the iniquities of his sons and daughters. And on the cross, he got slaughtered when we rejected his name but he rose with all power he didn't stay in the grave and that's why our identity is no longer a slave he truly saved us and forgave and though sin we sometimes crave he fully paid the penalty and displayed a victory that says sin no longer has ownership of you and me so I'll shout it from the rooftops that my name is now daughter and if you don't hear me the first time I'll say it a little louder that I'm a misfit in this world I don't fit in any longer God has adopted me and I can now call him Abba father So in the morning, in the mirror, I'll stare again, but this time today, I'm choosing not to pretend. No more covering up what is real, spending all my time just to conceal. No more living incognito. Today, my identity is revealed. Appreciate uh, Jess's uh, vulnerability. And uh, what a journey that young woman has been on, and uh, both her and her husband, huge blessing in our church. Um, clearly, you shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment is relevant for us. In spite of what culture has done to the Ten Commandments, um, they've comic stripped it, things like this. Uh, Andrew, if you could put up that comic strip. Um, you know, we've kind of like made light of it, um, looking at these, reading these, you know, like, do these even apply to me? I... I'm pretty sure I struggle with all of them. We've, we've come up with things like this. Uh, put up the hillbilly, Ten Commandments. Um, commandment number one in hillbilly talk, ain't but one God, uh, creative. Honor your mom, pa. <laughs> no telling tales or gossiping. Uh, get your hide to Sunday meeting, which is exactly what Remember the Sabbath is all about. Um <laughs> Ain't nothing, ain't nothing come before the Lord. I'm trying my best here. No fooling with other, another feller's gal. Um, here's my favorite. No killing except for critters. <laughs> Quit your foul mouth and <laughs> no swiping your kinfolk stuff. Fair enough. Don't be hankering for it neither. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We, listen, we've done a lot of... Thanks, you can take those down now. Um, we, we've done a lot of things with these ten. Uh, I was watching, a, and I hate to say this, but I was watching a YouTube video that the OWN Network created, Oprah, and uh, she recorded Ted Turner. And maybe some of you guys have heard of this, but Ted Turner came up with his own Ten Commandments. And, and he, basically what he says in the interview is, yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot's changed since Moses' day. He said, I think if, if it were today, they would be like more, they would be suggestions. And uh, that's what the Israelites thought. 
and that's what many of you have thought. You've misconstrued uh, these ten words in your mind. So this whole journey of seven weeks is, is, is about refiguring in our hearts and our minds what these ten words are. Fair enough? Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, my friends. Six verses tonight through two commandments. And they begin with verse 1 when simply the scripture says, And God spoke all these words, comma, saying. Well, we have a chronological problem. If you're using your Bible and not your phone, I guess your phone can still scroll back. But uh, verse 25 of chapter 19 shows Moses coming down the mountain again. Okay? I remember the third time for old seasoned Moses up and down the mountain. God has him doing his calisthenics. So we have Moses at the bottom of the mountain, but here it says God begins to speak. So we have, we have somewhat of an issue. Why? Because many of you in your minds grew up with the perception that, that God gave the law to Moses and then Moses communicated the law to the people. If you watch the Ten Commandments, the movie, that's what it portrays, right? But is it accurate? If God, if God just starts speaking and Moses is now at the bottom of the mountain and we know that the people have all gathered around the base of the mountain, then we have a bit of an issue. Now, there's a couple different theories and quite honestly, I, I haven't landed on one. Okay. Uh, there's one possibility that, um, that much like even the creation story, that chapter 19 gives us a summary of what chapter 20 will expound on. In other words, one of Moses' journeys up and down, God gives him the law and then Moses comes down to communicate it and therefore the people hear it. The other possibility is that, yes, in fact, as Moses has now come down for the third time and all the people have gathered they hear God's voice. Either way, the most significant thing for all of us to understand is that the people, listen, the people hear clearly what these laws, words, commandments are straight from the Lord. Whether it was through Moses, who has been the spokesman thus far, or whether it's from straight uh, from the mouth of God, the people are clear. The expectations are clear. Much like they were when Jesus told the disciples to come and follow me. Very clear expectations. Most of them were used to cast your net out, throw your, you know, your reel and your rod out. I don't even know if they had reels back then. I'm not a fisherman. But that's what they're used to. Jesus makes the expectations clear. He says, now boys, come and follow me. God here makes the expectations clear. The problem is many of you have understood these to be governing and judicial and almost hatred, haven't you? Maybe some of you guys grew up in a church that had the Ten Commandments on a wall. And they had them on two tablets. That's an error. The commandments wouldn't have been on two tablets. They would have been equally on two tablets. All ten on one, all ten on another, representing both pieces of the covenant relationship. You guys see what I'm saying? All of these images that we've grown up understanding about the Ten Commandments, I'm just trying to dig into your heart. Are they accurate? As you hear these, are you picturing a God with a gavel trying to smack the people upside the face in his hatred of them, trying to give them some framework for life? Or are these for you 
a symbol and an image of love. Verse 2 gives us an indicator. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Out of the hand of slavery, the land of slavery, the image of slavery. Um, this shows us the purpose of the Ten Commandments. Uh, who's someone up here in front that has kids? Who has kids? Someone up here. Okay. Mike. Mike and Mary, imagine when your kids are younger, okay? And I don't know your children, just imagine this. I don't know your kids, but I show up, okay? I'm a door-to-door salesman of knives, all right? And I come up to you and I'm trying to sell you a knife, Mike. I'm like, hey, dude, these things will cut, you know, like ninjas, man, you know? And you're getting bought in, and then all of a sudden your children, one of which is sitting next to you in his younger stage, you know, comes over in riffraff fashion and starts getting up in my knives, right? He's, he's, you know, he's messing with them. He's potentially stealing them. Imagine this. What if all of a sudden I went off on Mike's children? Like, like what if all of a sudden, not even knowing his kids, I got in his kid's face and I was like, you do not mess with my knives. You put those knives back and I even like, you know, like slide one out and let him see it. Right? In other words, with no relationship... I start to discipline Mike's kids. Well, knowing Mike, I know right now, you know, it would, you know Mike, Mike would not be having it. You know what I'm saying? And, and you fathers in this room, neither would you. If some dude shows up in your house, no relationship with your children, and starts disciplining them, you've been at the park before, right? When Random McGee, right, like starts calling out your kids, isn't there some kind of enrage that happens in your heart, Right? I mean, I have been to the point, and I, I consider myself a loving, gracious, often merciful individual. I mean, there's been times where I've seen people give my kids the keen eye, and I'm telling you what, like, all of a sudden I start flexing what I don't have, you know? <laughs> you know? Now listen, it's the same issue, very real issue, that many of you have experienced as step-parents. The reality is it is very difficult, especially initially, to figure out the line of relationship and discipline and obedience and, and how do I, you know, help shape these children's lives with a growing relationship. Like, like how do they see me as their parent? It's a tough line to walk. I've seen it in my own family. In other words, the most substantial times when obedience works is with strong relationship. Your kids, agree or disagree, your children see your discipline and follow in obedience you much better in the times where you are much closer to them. The times when you know that, uh, that, they love, uh, that you love them, the times that you're communicating with and, sit, uh, and sitting with them and hearing their hearts. God shows that they are already his people. This is one of the most misunderstood pieces of the Ten Commandments. The people are already his. You guys understand? He's already brought them out of, out of slavery. Remember last week? He's brought them to himself. They are already his people. These are not the Ten Clauses. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? I don't sit my kids down and put on the refrigerator an itemized list, and if they follow them every single day, at the end of the day, I'll call them my kid or not. 
God has already communicated that the nation of Israel is a people for his own possession. We saw last week, a holy nation, consecrated, set apart for God's possession. Are we together? So at the very premise of the ten words is a God who in his love is giving them gifts. You don't see it that way as kids, do you? Right? When your parents in their love and their grace shape and form your life, the last thing you see it as sometimes is a gift. And it's one of the things as you grow up, you start believing that those were presents. Way better than Christmas morning. The lessons learned. The teachings, the wisdom poured out. That is what these ten words are. Gifts, grace, mercy. They're already his kids. And so he is going to give them ten words, listen, that is going to show them the best way to live. You guys see what I'm saying? He is going to shape their hearts. Listen, children, these are the best way to live. If you embrace these, you will save yourselves so much turmoil, trouble, chaos. Listen to me. I'm pleading with you, children. You're already my kids. There's no prerequisite. And then jumping ahead, isn't it beneficial as we get in this that in Christ we're already his kids? God hasn't put a list up and said, listen, if you do these, then. He says, my son has done them perfectly. Confess him, and now you're my child. Right. So he begins, after showing that the whole purpose of this is love and grace and thunderous words, he says in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. We have a lot of defining of terms to do. I think uh, many of us maybe imagine that it's this. I have no other gods before me. So it's like, okay, as long as God sits above Buddha and Joseph Smith and sex and money and drugs and rock and roll and your job and your kids and your house and your things, right? Like have no other gods before me. So the thought is as long as I worship the Lord more than all these other things, then I can still worship, worship all of those other things. They, they just need to be in their proper place. That's what it seems linguistic, linguistically that it's communicating. But actually what the word before here is in the Hebrew is not in a order, but it's do not have any other gods in addition to me. It's a monotheistic word, which is incredibly pertinent for the Israelites who have just come out of Egypt. It's not this. Next slide. It's, it's this. Okay? Next slide. It's God or these things. They've just come out of polytheistic Egypt. I mean, God's for everything. God for the sun. God for the river. God for, um, you know, all kinds of things. God for the Egyptian playgrounds. I mean, there's a God for everything. That's what they've come from. And what the first, seemingly perfect first gift is do not put any other gods in addition to me. Monotheistic. One God. It's one thing to believe that, that there is one God in a world of gods. 
one true God. One God stands above the rest. And it's a whole other thing to completely and fully believe that there is only one God. You guys see what I'm saying? It's one thing to believe that there is one God that stands above the rest, heads and shoulders above the competition. And it's a whole other thing to believe that there is literally in this universe only one God, only one. But the reality for the Israelites, and ergo you and I as well, is man, this is really tough. Things start to grab our attention. Things start to compete. For the Israelites, it would have been learning that you will spend a tremendous amount of time of your life not living exhausted if you can figure out how to worship one God. In other words, God in His grace is saying, listen, I want to save you tremendous amounts of exhaustion. Uh, how many of you guys have ever hosted a party where you've had to, like, work the room? Okay? Your wedding reception would have been a great example. Right? You feel like, look, all these people have come. They probably dropped some green in an envelope and the card hopper. You know, I, I need to pass the piece here with everyone. And so you walk around, hey, how, you know, how's Aunt Mildred doing? And, you know, this person that you've never even met that you act like your best friends. And, and all the way around the room trying to please everyone, trying to make sure that everyone has a little bit of your attention and that they know that you're thankful, but in your heart, you're really not interested. It's exhausting, isn't it? In your life, think about how exhausting it is to spread your attention to the competing lowercase gods. Sometimes trying to appease this form and this understanding and this God and other times trying to appease this. And essentially in your life, you're working the wedding reception room. Shaking hands, kissing babies, smiling a whole lot, trying to please everything and everyone, and at the end of the day, exhausted. Do you see the gift that this is to the people? Listen, people, think of how much time you can save yourself in exhaustion. There is one God, that's it. You will find yourself in freedom when the competition, you realize, doesn't exist. When there is no more competition. When there's no competing forces at all. Where God has captured your heart to the point where all of the other things on the list literally do not even vie for your attention. And you're like, Mark, how is that even possible? When the image of God's grace and glory captures your eye more than a pornography scene. When the thought of God's grace and the image of God's love means more than your marriage. When the depth of His mercy, the reach of His arm, the saving power of His being a Savior captures you so much more than the lure to make more happy a boss, build relationships. When God catches your eye more than all of those things and captures your heart, 
you realize there is no competition. So I want to ask tonight, um, is there a competition at all for you right now? The question isn't what lowercase gods are vying for it. I'm asking you, is there even a competition? And what God is telling these people, you've come out of Egypt. Trust me, there need not be a competition. Haven't I proven myself? Like, like how, did the, how did the sun God do when I like, brought darkness? How did the river God do when I turned it into blood? How did the sea God non-parting sea God do when I parted the sea they failed and who prevailed the one true God because all of the other things listen do not exist as a God well Christians have been called all kinds of things for believing this you have maybe been called all kinds of things for believing this you're close-minded How close-minded could you be to believe that there is literally only one God? Have you had these conversations? I certainly have. You're intolerant. You're a bigot. Like, listen, it's all about just everyone doing their own thing. And in my heart, more and more, instead of seeing judgment, what I see myself saying in my heart and often vocally is, you're missing the gift. The gift that I found is I realize there is no competition and that creates rest and freedom. I live my days as the competing forces try to reach up, looking at them as if they're completely silly. And can I make a case study for you? The disciples. Case in point, case rests. Idiots, morons in the Gospels. Don't get it. Arguing about all kinds of things. And do you know what after they see the uh, resurrected Jesus they're arguing about? How to best serve the widows. How to best serve the widows. Doctrine. How to spend more time preaching and teaching. We don't see Peter anymore denying the name of Jesus to a nine-year-old girl. Why? He's seen the risen Christ and God has captured his heart. There is no more competition. The competition is dead and gone. The pieces of his heart, the sin nature of his heart that were always whispering in his ear, oh, there's more, there's more out there, you need to experience more out there. He's come to a place where he realizes and believes there is not. Everything I need, every fulfillment I need, every joy that I need is found in the Lord. And his argument and his life and everything about him completely changes. I'm not asking you tonight, what are the lowercase gods? I'm asking you tonight, is there competition at all? And so you're like, all right, Mark, okay, okay. Bunch of Israelites hearing this. But Mark, so what do we do? What do we do if there's competition? In fact, what do we do if the recognition right now is that you're more polytheistic than what you thought coming in here? Um, I searched the scriptures trying to answer this question the best. And the thing that I keep coming back to, the passages that I keep relying on, are the constant command from Christ, and especially seen in John when Jesus says, look, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. That love and obedience work collectively 
which means that is the will of the Lord. Which means when we pray in His will, like 1 John says, He will hear and He'll answer. Which means when we pray for God to purge us of the competition, I believe He will answer that prayer. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, my friend. As God starts purging and weaning you off, just like an addict who's weaned off of drugs, there is a process and sometimes painful process involved. But in the end, freedom, rest, and seeing this command as a gift. Amen? He goes on here to commandment number two, which many people have, have joined maybe as kind of, you know, instead of the ten, it should be the nine because these two are, uh, we don't believe that here. We believe that this is commandment word number two. Here's what he says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Culturally, why is this so huge? Uh, Jared, a resident uh, scholar here, um, gave me a wonderful book on this uh, piece. I'm not saying I read the whole thing. Um, <laughs> uh, but what it describes is in the ancient Near East... It wasn't just that idol worship um, was prevalent. Listen, it was that it was central. The ancient Near East, okay, the culture that the Israelites have been a part of in Egypt, idol worship was central. It was convenient. They could hold it. It was before them. They believed so much so in idolatry that the idol was the mediator. The mediator. The idol was the mediator between God and the people as a prophet and also between the people and God as a priest. So this like carved image fulfilled both roles that the mediator fulfilled. Unbelievable, right? That people could believe so much in something that could be made with human hands that it would literally fulfill the mediator role that ultimately Christ fulfills both sides of. It's crazy, but that's, that's, the, that's the culture. And not too distant from today. So imagine you're an Israelite and all you've seen is gods for everything and all these gods for everything have carved out of them faces and hands and sons and all kinds of things. And what God says is, listen, the idolatry in your heart absolutely must be killed. Tim Keller wrote a book on idolatry, um, really, really beautiful book. And here's how he defines an idol. It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give uh, to give you what, what God can only, what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one, Tim Keller says, is worship. So an idol is something in various forms that has become for you a complete object of worship. So if the gift of no other gods before me is rest 
in that the search is done and there is no competition, what is the gift in this command? What is the gift in this command? Where is the grace in this command? How is God trying to bless the people in this command? I'm sure you're thinking of your own answers right now, which I hope you are. But how about one of them? If you put creation above creator in any form, silliness. Uh, how many of you guys love to cook? All right. Um, more specifically, uh, which that wasn't many at all. So apparently we eat out a lot. How many men here love to cook? Men? Okay, guys. Several of you. Um, and I'll point out Jason Scott because he is like the resident Matthias barbecuer. Um, and a shameless plug, his barbecue sauce literally has changed my life. Um, it's, not, I'm not, it's not idolatrous for me, but it's close. Um, now, I'm nowhere near the cook of Jason. But I like to be creative, as, can, uh, as you can imagine. So if you talk to my wife, throughout the years, I've made many dishes up from scratch, okay? Um, one of my favorites is, I was like, okay, I really like brown sugar. Amen? I'm like, there's nothing, you know, the combination of brown and sugar is amazing. Okay, I love brown sugar. I, I also like, listen, I also like chicken. And I also like barbecue sauce. Someone's like, okay, let's say, for instance, let's say I took some tin foil and I like cut up chicken in like little bites to feel, you know, creative and to feel like I'm a chef. And then I throw these chicken bites in this, you know, tin foil. And then I threw some barbecue sauce. And then, for fun, I threw some brown sugar, like tremendous amounts of it on top. And then I wrapped it up like a little gift of love, and I put it on the grill. And I walked away for half an hour. Like, what would happen, right? And listen, at that point, at that point, I've invested, I've come up with the idea, like, it, you know, agree, no matter how it tastes, it's still going to be, in my opinion, like the best thing ever, right? Right? Haven't you ever experienced this? I mean, you could cook the worst thing ever, and sometimes you're honest with yourself, but most of the time, in your heart, you're like, and I open these little nuggets of love, you know? And seriously, I mean, it was like, it was like God had blessed us with little chicken bites from heaven, you know? And I started eating, the, I was just, I was so proud of them, I had created them. Like, like the, these were little, you know, I had made, this recipe did not come from any website, any, you know, Pinterest, it didn't come from anywhere came from my creative brain, right? <laughs> now, now, listen, how silly, how silly would it be in that moment if all of a sudden, like I started being consumed, or those who were eating it, I started being consumed with the object of the creativity versus the originator. In other words, how silly is it that any of us would ever look at creation and marvel it more than the one who made it? This gift is God saying it is silliness to create something, to watch creation, to see around you and worship it instead of the one who's over all of it. It's silliness. It's insanity to sit on a beach with your toes, you know, wrinkling around in the sand. You know? 
theme song playing behind from whatever, you know, Top Gun or something. Bad choice. I don't know, a romantic song. <laughs> Listen, and you to think in that moment, you to think in that moment, like, I'm so thankful that there is an ocean. There's an ocean because there's a God who made it. There's a beach because there's a God who separated the land from the waters. There is a sky because a God said, let there be sky. Read it. It's there somewhere. All right? God is trying to bless his people with the gift that says, if you worship creation over creator, you are silly. You're wasting your time. You're idolatrous. Idolatry and Wheel of Fortune, when they mesh, it looks like this. Um, (laughs) People, places, and things. I think often our idolatry is shaped by these things. In other words, next slide, this is what we could say. We idolize um, people and who does your heart deify? Who does your heart make a God? I would imagine there's some folks in this room who have made other folks sitting in the same row as you um, a god, an idol. Places, um, where does your heart deify it? For some of you, your home is way too much of an idol. You spend most of your time there, unfortunately. But you're like, Mark, but, but isn't, isn't our home, uh, our home is where our heart is. Yeah, I read that in Hobby Lobby too one time, you know. Um, and it's not that your home's not important. In fact, for you parents, it is primary, but there's a whole bunch of people around as well. Uh, but for some of you, it's not a home necessarily. It's, it's your workplace. It's a place where you feel comfortable. Things. What does your heart deify? What possessions of yours have become so idolatrous that you've started to look at them as though they've created themselves? For a whole nation of Israel, 1.5 million of them who have come out of polytheistic chaos, of carved images everywhere, of people worshiping creation over creator, what God is saying is, do not spend one more second worshiping the things Worship the one. And then God gives them some unbelievable loving words in this. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Look at this. For I, the Lord your God, please somebody. I am a what? I'm a jealous God. When I was a new believer, I I was really confused. Because I'm pretty sure he's getting ready to say, don't be jealous. If you've read the Ten Commandments, if you heard the, the hillbilly commandments, like, you know. Like a, coveted, a, a, a coveting heart. So, so when God is a jealous God, what, what does that mean? Well, it's certainly deep, but at the same time, it's very, very simple. God is jealous for our heart. He wants it. He's made it. He's created it. He desires it. He wants to be in union with his children. In Christ, 
all of his kids in union with him. He's jealous for that. He wants us. He doesn't need us. He's God without us, amen? But he's jealous for us. He wants us, desires us. So he says all things, and then we get this picture, look at this, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. In other words, the lack of following these words that are gifts will affect your children and your children's children. I'm trying to show you the best way to live, and if you disobey, years and years worth of pain. Not even all the time in judgment or discipline, but simply because I showed you the best way to live, and you spent your life worshiping all kinds of things. And you found yourself tired. And then when you got tired, you became idolatrous. And when you became idolatrous, you had an affair. Or you got addicted to this. Or you pursued that. Or you got lost over here. I'm a jealous God. But verse 6, I love the word but, as Jesse even pointed out in the video. But showing steadfast love. Look at this. To thousands of those who love me. And keep my commandments. We know it's not a prerequisite. Now, how do these Israelites do with uh, one and two? If you've read ahead, again, spoiler alert, bad. Okay. Uh, struggle bus, all right? Uh, they do not do well. They do not do well. How have you done? Number one and two. No other gods before me. No carved images. No idolatry. How have you done? Well, now we understand the point of the Ten Commandments. Could the Israelites accomplish it? Pre-Holy Spirit? Heck no. How are you doing? We needed somebody. Years and years and years worth of case study. After God gifts these things that are gifts to the Israelites, and they show they cannot obey. They needed somebody to obey. They needed someone to stand in. Now, and I want to I share my heart on this. All of a sudden... After all these things, I've realized something crazy that comes in Matthew 22. Look at this. Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, after this law is written on tablets, before Moses and the people, Jesus then later is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What's, what's the top one? I mean, what sits at the primary helm? And what does Jesus say? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God. And what's next? With all your heart, no competition, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the greatest commandment. That's the greatest gift. That is the greatest grace. You, because of Jesus, can love God. And we know what Scripture says we only love because what? Because what? Because he first loved us. Now all of a sudden our years worth of history colliding 
And Jesus says the greatest commandment, the greatest gift, the greatest word is that you can love God. Is that you can be in relationship with Him. And so thankfully Jesus fulfills the law, the scripture says, obeys it perfectly. And then what God sees is not our disobedience to making other gods idols. He sees a Savior who didn't. Now, uh, tonight, going to do something we've never, ever done. I just want to get real candid with all of you. I recognize tonight that many of you guys, as we start talking about all this, you realize that you walked in here believing all kinds of other gods or confused or never having believed God at all. What the scripture says is confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, and you'll be saved. That confession of your mouth, belief that he, Jesus, did the work for you so that by God's grace, not by your works, by God's grace, you could be called a son or his daughter as just put, that through that grace, you would receive salvation. I recognize tonight that some of you have never been baptized before. And you're like, Mark, why do you, why do you bring that up? What we see in the scripture is the command to baptize people in obedience to the Lord. We believe here that, that if you're not baptized and you die, it doesn't mean you're not, you're not a Christian. If that was the case, then the thief on the cross was in trouble. Okay? But what we do believe here is that baptism is a symbol, a profession of our faith to the body of Christ and what God has done in our hearts. Okay. What we also believe here is that uh, salvation and baptism is just the beginning. We have a huge heart in this church for discipleship. For young believers growing in their faith. Living life with people, hearing the truths of the scripture, and growing not just in head knowledge, but my friends, in understanding what true servant-hearted following Christ looks like. I know some of you tonight, as we've been talking through this, you realize you desperately need a savior. And I'm telling you right now, you will spend your life exhausted looking for all kinds of other gods when there is only one. There's only one Uh, tonight here is an opportunity for you. Uh, the baptism is filled. We have clothes in the back, ready to go. In a second, I'm going to have a whole bunch of leaders back there in that corner. We're not scripting anything, we're not. But I feel like some of you right now, in your heart, you may be like, you know what? It's time for me to confess Christ. I'm tired of living all these frivolous days for myself. I'm ready to submit, receive the gift that God has for me, and profess right now in front of this church body and the Lord that I desire to follow him all the days of my life. So what I'm saying is, if tonight, if that's you, you can be baptized tonight, right now. No waiting, no nothing. And you're like, but I want my family to be here. We have someone that's ready to film it so we can send it to your family.
I'm going to pray for us as a whole. If those things are on your heart, again, whether you've come to Christ in a few months ago and you're just like, man, I, I just haven't professed my faith yet in Christ and baptism, then that opportunity is there for you. Or for people tonight who are just like, it's, it's time now. I'm tired of living one more day for myself. We're just believing that the Lord will do as the Lord wants. All, listen, all throughout this journey of the, the Ten Commandments, every single gathering we have for seven weeks, we will have this opportunity to be baptized immediately. So I'm going to pray. If those things are on your heart, I'm going to have a whole bunch of leaders in that back corner with lanyards. Find them. As we respond in worship, they'll get you going, and in a few minutes we'll baptize you. Father, I pray right now. By your power, that you would move in the hearts of my friends here tonight. That you would help us understand the gifts that you have given us. You haven't held out on us. These commandments weren't coming from a, a merciless parent. Help us believe tonight that, that you have in every way tried to shape our lives around who you are and around what ultimately is the best for your glory and namesake. So I pray right now, God, for my friends in this room, some who maybe even right now are just prompted just to confess you for the first time or, or finally, God, be baptized in obedience. I just pray in power that we as a church community will not be confined by the rules and the laws of Christendom in our culture, but that we would seek by your grace to allow the competition to be killed and purged from our life as only you remain. Let's stand together. Our leaders are back there if you desire to respond.